the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. Thank you so much for all of our wonderful listeners and all of our subscribers. If you are not subscribed already, please go wherever you get your podcasts and go and subscribe to the Cover 3 Podcast. Go ahead and head on over there. Give us a five-star rating and give us a review because guess what? It's a Mailbag Monday. And, uh, and all the questions that you're going to hear were submitted uh, along with five-star ratings and reviews of the podcast. So uh, this is a very, you know, a lot of listener interaction here. Just uh, letting you know here at the beginning, uh, this is how these listeners got these questions in, and this is how you can do so in the future. Uh, joined, as always, by Barton Simmons, Tom Fernelli. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Good. Hey, did you guys notice that in uh, in our or at least on Twitter, we got a couple of Australian ute- utes. Yes. Uh, beyond just the couple Australians we know listen. Uh, so that's encouraging, you know, worldwide. Australia in the house. What's Australia up? is clearly a Utah power. You know, like it's a pipeline. That's true. Yeah, that, that was the right that was the right uh, demographic to call for ute- utes out of because there's, there's probably a few Australian Utah fans out there. We are also probably one of the most Utah friendly podcasts around. The would, only Utah friendly podcast. <laughs> right. The only Utah friendly podcast outside of Utah. I mean, Barton's been beating the Utah drum since July. My eleven and one my eleven and one prophecy is pretty close to coming true. Mm-mm. And that's and that's what we'll be talking about for the next two weeks. Uh right. so Utah. It'll be a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's dive on in here. Speaking of uh, the the great Utah discussion, let's talk about Alabama. Kara <laughs> uh, from Seville asks if Alabama beats Auburn and leaves the regular season a top ten team, but doesn't make the playoff. Do we still look back on the season as a big success when considering the many obstacles this team has faced? It seems like several in the media are taking the opportunity to say, quote, the dynasty is over. So the two pieces I'm, uh, I'm really interested in from this question, number one, you know, how the, the, the lens that we view this 2019 Alabama season, but then also whether or not, uh, whether or not we would align ourselves with some of those in the media that are rushing to say the dynasty is over. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're Alabama and your goal is to win a national title and you don't even make the playoff. Is that a successful season? Right. Yeah. That the success of this season, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can call it a success if you don't make the playoffs. But that doesn't mean that there's that that the dynasty's crumbling. No, I think the the I guess the the commenter is talking about all the injuries they've had to overcome, the injury to Tua, the preseason issues with Dylan Moses and Josh McMillan, and uh, I guess that is is certainly of note. Um, to me, it's not about. The, like I, I no, I don't think the dynasty is crumbling. I don't think nothing has changed with Alabama. To me, what we're witnessing right now, for the first time in a while, is more true competition for Alabama, mm. both on the field and on the recruiting trail. The like Alabama has run almost unopposed for the last, I don't know, decade. Um, and and it, and you got some teams that'll cycle up with a good year, and they can maybe beat them. And 
yada yada. But I, I think right now with the way LSU's recruiting and playing, with the way Ohio State's recruiting and playing, with the way Georgia's recruiting and playing, uh, obviously Clemson hasn't gone anywhere. They're still recruiting at a high level and playing at a high level. There, There is more true competition for that program and for Nick Saban than he's had I, I, that I can remember. What was the seven straight run, seven straight years of the number one class in the country? Do you see Alabama being able to, or, or do you see any program being able to put together that kind of run again? I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to dismiss it and say no, but it's unlikely. I mean, that's that is the, what was made that so impressive was that he was doing it in this age of parody, this age of, of you know, this isn't the Bear Bryant generation where you can take as many scholarships as you want and no rules and you're just you're the biggest baddest dude on the block and so you can muscle everyone out of the way. Everyone's playing on national television. Everyone's got there's there's all kinds of restrictions that are that serve to create as a level of playing field as as we can find and yet still Alabama was bringing in number one class in seven straight years that's ridiculous that's absurd I think that era is over for Alabama uh so it is like there is I don't know if you know the dynasty isn't over but the dominance might be or like the unchecked ability to just have my point is I don't think like the like the wheels like in in this in this NASCAR race, it's not as if Alabama's tires are 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 loose right now. It's not as if the you know the engine is is falling apart. It's it's still going as fast as ever. It's just a, the difference is a few people have bulked up their engines and and are are going at the same speed. Mm. Mm. I, I will say you, I don't think it's over, but you can't rule it out because it is going to end at some point. They all do, right. Well, that's <laughs> great, great, uh, great civilizations last about 200 years and football programs can only dominate for about a decade. Mm-hmm. Tom, Tom Fernelli. <laughs> uh, all right. This is uh, this all along that line. And yes, yes, listeners, if you if you tickle our fancy with your with your um, review or your question, you're probably going to get bumped to the front of the line. And so, <laughs> Tank Solomon says, a question for the premier SNC pod. <sighs> Love oh, it. so proud. So proud. That's, what, that, that's the kind of rep we like. Is it time to move on from Scott Cochran? Scott Cochran, the Alabama uh, strength and conditioning coach who came over, was with uh, Saban at LSU. Was he with him at the Dolphins too, or did he just link back up with him at Alabama? Uh, I don't know that question. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. He the, might have just been at LSU still. The past three years, we have had absolutely devastating injuries before the season even started, the first game of the season, and throughout. Our guys, when they go through the draft, have seemingly major, major red flags every single year. Although the rest of the fan base doesn't think this run will ever end, I'd argue that the injuries may be the reason we are wasting some of the prime and title-challenging years. Also, and we can get to this one after we sort of put a bow on uh, on the Alabama talk here at the beginning. What is your go-to tailgate or pregame meal? And then Tank Solomons asks Tom specifically, Italian beef, chai dog, or deep dish pizza. Y'all are great and would love to see some more diverse content come the offseason, book club, movie, or show reviews too. So Another vote for the book club. Another vote for the book club. Love that we are the premier uh, SNC pod. And the concerns about Alabama's injuries, like that's a that's something that we – I'm not as educated about being able to connect those dots. Though I've, I've been learning a lot more and I've been trying to learn a lot more when you've got issues with being able to stay healthy. I don't feel as strongly about that. But uh, Alabama players do get red flags during the the medical parts of NFL draft evaluations, I have always tied that to uh, an unproven just sort of uh, adage of the modern college football era that, you know, Alabama's just got the biggest, strongest players in the country and they have really physical practices and that's part of the process. And as they're just banging against each other over and over again, 
uh, and, and, and playing in the SEC where everybody's bigger and stronger, that that's why we do have some of these Alabama bodies that uh, show up to the NFL with some of the wear and tear concerns that have been associated with the Nick Saban Alabama program. Not sure if I would, you know, I, I don't know where that lands in terms of Cochran's responsibility, but some of these recent injuries uh, are worth the consideration. So uh, I guess, Tom, I'll let you dive in first on this one. I don't think that any of the three of us is going to be the judge on, you know, Scott Cochran's job uh, security. I would guess that he's probably, you know, he's been with Saban all this time. He's probably going to be with Saban. I don't see that being, that would be a surprising change if we got a press release about it here in the next hour. But do you think that Tank Solomons has any, uh, any merit to this wandering, wondering aloud if, if perhaps it is the injuries and the strength and conditioning program that end up being uh, the, the sort of beginning of the end of Alabama's unquestioned dominance? I mean, maybe I'm not close enough or maybe he's too close, but does Alabama really have more injuries or more guys going to the NFL with red flags physically than any other program? Or is it just that Alabama has sent so many guys to the NFL that a greater number of their guys would have physical red it's flags. Sample size, basically. There's more of them. Yeah. yeah. So I I don't know. I think that this is might be just a case where Tank is only really paying attention to Alabama as far as that instance is concerned. And I think that, you know, with injuries the last few weeks might be exacerbating that issue in his mind. Because I nobody I talked to, I mean, there's there's always been players that have come from Alabama where there were red flags on them physically coming out of college. But like I said, that's been the case with players from other schools too. And it's typically the case with any player that's played a lot at any school. And like you were saying, Chip, when you're going up against other NFL players pretty much every day in practice, and you're going up against other NFL players on Saturdays in games that you see in the SEC, I think that's just something that's going to happen. And this is like we talked about with Tua's injury. This is football, man. There's no strength and conditioning coach out there that's going to keep dudes from getting hurt because that's just what happens in football games. So I don't know. I think that maybe we're seeing something there that's – and again, this could be just me not being close enough to notice it, but I, I, I part of me thinks that this is just some seeing something that's not truly there. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, <clears throat> I don't really – I'm always unsure how, to, how much to attribute – injuries to the strength and conditioning coach. I'm sure that there are times when it is relevant and and accurate to say that injuries are as a result of a poor strength and conditioning. Uh, but I, I think with the Alabama deal, and, and I do think the, the, the idea, the concept of Alabama players being banged up heading into the NFL has merit, at least it does according to NFL scouts that I've talked to. I mean, they, they say, you know, Bama guys are aren't tapped out physically like some people say, but they're but they are beat up physically because of the way those practices are run. Um, but that's what's kept Alabama. I, I mean, you can't argue with the program that has been in the playoffs every year of its existence. You can't. I mean, because this year they might not make it due to a what was it like seven twelve point loss? How bad they lose eight point loss to LSU. It was really a two-score loss, but it was a one-score loss. One-score one yeah. loss, so somewhere in there. Um, so they have one, they've got one loss in the regular season to LSU that might keep them out of the playoffs. Otherwise, it'll be another playoff appearance. And and so I think we're nitpicking a little bit. Yeah, they've had injuries. But Scott Cochran, you got to keep in mind, as a strength coach, as the premier strength and conditioning pod, we have to acknowledge the strength coaches are more than just guys that are getting get players stronger and more than just – coaches that are uh guarding them against injury they are setting the tone in the program they are the i mean scott cochran that is his whole deal is the energy that he brings from a, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis so uh so no i'm not ready to i'm not ready to 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 pin the tail on scott cochran for alabama injuries because ultimately they're still they're still rolling and ultimately i think if you're gonna like criticize the alabama program for the injuries I think you start to point at Nick Saban um, for the, you know, can he adapt? I mean, you look at Ed Ogeron, one of the biggest meatheads in college football. You know, they're, they're, they're practicing less, practicing less physical. Maybe that's why their defense isn't as good. So maybe that, that correlates. Um, 
I don't know, Dartmouth just won the Ivy League championship along with Yale, and they never they never tackle in practice ever. So like, there's a there is a maybe there's an an evolution that that Nick Saban has to embrace, but maybe not because they're still ultimately at the top of the food chain in college football. And and we just talked about I don't think the the screws are coming loose yet. They've just they just lost one game. Finish! Come no, on and finish! Does does Dartmouth not tackle in practice because they want to preserve their bodies, or because tackling contributes to global warming? It's a it's it's a complicated it's a complicated issue, Tom. Okay, cool. I, so it's probably we can't figure it out on this podcast. <laughs> they have the they have those fake ta- they have the uh, remote control tackling dummies that they use. Oh, those That's- things are sweet. I want to buy one. Just have it in the house. Just just walk it around the block in Chicago, like uh, like your buddy. Just like turn it on like a Roomba, and like when you walk into a room and you see it, just tackle it. You know what I mean? Just, just wander. Around. What about the? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, a good Christmas gift for the yeah. kids. Mm, somebody's getting a tackling dummy. What about the go-to tailgate or pregame meal? Tom, you got the specific uh, Italian beef. Chicago dog or deep dish pizza? I haven't tailgated in a long time, but when I was tailgating, the meal or the food was whatever meat was there in high life. And then as far as Italian beef, Chicago dog, or deep dish pizza, listen, we Chicagoans don't really eat deep dish pizza, okay? I don't hate it. I don't think it's pizza, but... I know it's what we're known for, quote unquote, in Chicago, but it's really not. It's more of a tourist thing. All right. I will say Lou Malnati's is the best, but I would rather have tavern style, square cut, thin crust pizza than deep dish any day of the week. As far as those three options, I'm going to go with the Italian beef. What did you think I was going to pick? What about you, Barton? Tailgate or pregame meal? Oh, gosh, man. Well, like Tom said, I've, I've, I'm not a, I'm not at a lot of tailgates these days. Um, I'm always I don't know I don't know I'm always up for like chips and dip. Is that just sort of a square answer? Chips and dip and a Bud Light. That's kind of all I need. The thing for me is like when I was tailgating, I was at the age where I was far more interested in getting drunk than I was. To, you know what I mean? It's like that's what the tailgate was for me because it's you couldn't drink in the stadium. It's not like it is now where they actually sell beer and stuff in the stadium. So you had to get all your drinking in before the game. And in Champagne, the games were always at 11 a.m. So you'd be out there at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. just drinking beers, getting ready. Yeah, y'all need to uh... – Y'all need y'all need to strike up some friendships with uh, people with pig cookers because while I don't actually get to experience the tailgating at the stadium, I get a lot of house parties every year that sort of end up having that tailgate atmosphere. So I'll say, uh, like you give you give uh, a slow cooked pig, and if you're offering up some some good sides with it, and because we're outdoors, because we're sort of taking that tailgate atmosphere. You know, you you give me some kind of uh, roll, you know, or bun that I can create a a handheld barbecue coleslaw sandwich. That's my go-to tailgate meal. I mean, that's that is the best answer. Hell yeah, I'll 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 dive in on a a pig on a stick. Yeah, you want to take me to a pig roast? Cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's. I mean, and you know, you catch that. It's like, oh, like you know, we've got something to celebrate. Well, all right, Strickland's cooking a pig. We're going over to his house. And I still get my tailgate environment. I love it. Thank you, Strickland. Uh, <laughs> this question from Marcel Wilson asked uh, earlier in the month also ties into some other uh, questions. So we're going to group them all together and, uh, and, and sort of indulge this, uh, this idea. Marcel asks, why aren't coaches given more time to turn programs around? Where would Alabama be if they fired Saban after they lost to UL Monroe? And where would LSU be if they fired Coach O after losing to Troy? And uh, we've also got specific questions on Manny Diaz. Uh, am I allowed to want to fire, have Manny Diaz fired before he finishes the first season? I get it takes time to implement your style and recruit, but with inexcusable losses to Georgia Tech and FIU, he is clearly not the guy to get the job done. Our players just don't show up, and that's not something that Manny can blame on not having enough time. 
then uh, Coach A99 asks, Vanderbilt recently announced Derek Mason would be returning for the 2020 season. Do you guys believe Turner when he says Coach Mason has his full support, or is he still on the hot seat this season? Second, and I think this part's really interesting, do you think enhancing facilities instead of changing coaches every couple years is a better option for long-term success? Should universities give more time to coaches who are trying to rebuild a program, and do you think a step this may be a step in that direction? It's talking about Derek Mason. Frank Beamer went 20 40 and two in his first six seasons with Virginia tech. What if he was a young coach today? Well, if he was a young coach today, he'd be fired. So the, <laughs> the, the general uh, questions and the reason why I wanted to tie these all together is because they do have to do with, you know, these coaching tenures. And we've seen recently Willie Taggart and Chad Morris, both fired before the end of their second season and the complicated math that needs to be done by every single uh, athletic department university president as it pertains to whether we are going to invest in getting a new coach, whether we're going to invest in improving the support for the current coach and the different ways that you try and close the gap between where you're at and your competitors. I suppose we could save the Miami uh, maybe as a, a another little side part of this, but my, my initial reaction is uh, to – to not cop out, but to start off easy, it is a case by case basis. I mean, we have the every single university is different. Every single uh, booster club is different. Every single athletic director is different, and the the case by case basis means that there is a little bit of a, a different equation that every single school is going to run based on their decisions with the head coach of their college football program. Now, that being said, I do think there are some connections. Uh, across the board that we can start to draw so uh barton how where are you where are you leaning right now as we we try to unpack the how much time is enough time to let a coach stay before deciding to make a change man it is tough but and and every every situation is different like you said i think that's the key and and everyone points to the coach o deal where they be they lost you know fired him after the troy and and he deserved more time. He got more time, but you never know what the turning points in each coach's career are. Like hiring Joe Brady, getting Joe Burrow as a grad transfer, those may be the the real turning points in the coach O situation. And and now that he's gotten rolling, uh, perhaps that's like he you know, coaching from a with a lead, so to speak, in the in, in a from a big picture standpoint, maybe he's got all the tools he needs to be really successful um you know i, I think you know like coach Derek mason is is i think an interesting case study and and that was a um i think a, an insightful comment uh because i i actually do tend to think that vanderbilt is making the right decision not because i think Derek mason is the right guy for the job because i i'm not confident in that uh i don't think that what he's shown at vanderbilt over his time has shown any consistency any any reason to have confidence in him as a, a coach that can do it like elevate this program further than it already is right now that said if you're a new ad and you come in like just chopping heads off isn't the way to fix a, an athletic department with the kind of issues that vanderbilt has and so if he's serious about really investing in uh facility upgrades really showing maybe like making a statement not not literally but but conveying a message to coaches around the country look at what we're doing at Vanderbilt look at the way we're going to commit to this program look at the facility upgrades we're going to commit to look at all the ways we're going to invest in this athletic department then next year when Derek Mason doesn't have a good year once again and he's a three and nine then you make that change you've had the time to do the due diligence on your on your coaching search you've got the names lined up that you want and here's your plan to be able to pitch those guys and, and, and go make a good hire. And so that, I, I think that that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know, we're, we're addressing a few different deals here, a few different comments, but um, yeah, I, I think that the patience is, is, is pretty important um, if you have the right guy, but also so is pulling the ripcord if you don't. And, and I have no problem when the wrong guy's in, of pulling the ripcord. But for example, Manny Diaz, like 
there's no reason to think that there that there's any I mean, we joked about Bush Davis taking that job and him taking FIU, but the reality is you just you can't judge Manny Diaz on this season. You just can't. Um and 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 just like we can't judge Jeremy Pruitt on a Georgia State loss. Um you have to you know have some nuance to the way you evaluate these things. Yeah, I want to, and I want to go. This is not to Marcel who asked the question, but it's just something because I've seen it as an example brought up so many times, and I feel like whenever it's brought up, it's missing so much context. If Alabama had fired Saban after the UL Monroe loss, first of all, that was in his first season. <laughs> the next year, he went twelve and two. Secondly, he'd already won a national title at LSU he'd earned the benefit of the doubt as far as what he was inheriting and what that team was. I mean, they, they weren't, nobody was ever going to consider fi- firing Saban after that loss because he was Nick Saban. But anyways, aside from that, I think you guys have pretty much covered most of it. I mean, it's, it's a case by case basis and there's lots of context that goes into each, like at Florida state and at Arkansas, we saw both Taggart and Chad Morris get fired in the middle of their second seasons. And while, in an ideal world, you could say that every coach should get at least three seasons and probably four if we really want to see a true cycle of, you know, bringing in their own guys and implementing their own style and what they want to do. There are some cases where you can look and say, well, you know, there's really not any sign to think that this is going to work. Like, you know, with with Arkansas, with the problems that they had recruiting, with Chad Morris bringing in, they had a really great recruiting class. They didn't have much of a good one. Willie Taggart, they didn't have quarterbacks in their two recruiting classes under Taggart. Nothing was really improving. So you could see signs that, you know, things aren't working and there's nothing really to point to and say, well, this is a good indicator going forward. So like Barton said, sometimes you could pull it too early, but it's better to pull a little too early than, you know, hanging on too long. And if I could compare it to a situation I'm familiar with at Illinois, even, you know, a month and a half ago where, you know, I was joking around about the the coaching search firm, you know, keeping candidate, keeping a list just in case because Lovey Smith was in his fourth season, but the results hadn't been there yet. But if you looked under the surface, you could still have said that what he inherited and what they had done Lovey had improved the talent level of the program. So there were signs that things were getting better. It's just at some point the wins needed to start coming, and the wins finally started coming. But it's not the exact same situation because, again, this was his fourth season, although you could say it was his third. And it's not all – it. Uh, I don't I'm getting lost in the weeds here now, but it's, it's, a con, it's a contextual thing. Like Manny Diaz, no, you can't – I understand why – you'd be angry and why you're like, Oh man, this isn't going to work because you've had a bad season. But when you're having a bad season, like I was a minute ago, you get lost in the weeds of all the bad losses and that's all you can see. And you can't see a way to get out and you're thinking, Oh my God, we have to move on. But there's no proof that Manny Diaz is not going to be able to win at Miami yet. And then you look at Derek Mason and I'm with Barton too, where it's like, I don't think that you need to move on simply because I don't know who you'd replace him with right away, but I'm also not exactly super confident that Derek Mason's going to be the answer for Vanderbilt long-term either. So, Yeah, and let's be clear. Like De- Malcolm Turner gave Derek Mason, I guess, a vote of confidence, but like, no, no, there's no misconception about what that means. That doesn't mean that he thinks that he's our next co- the, the coach of Vanderbilt for the next 10 years. It means that he's our coach now and we'll evaluate next year. And so I, I, I think – the way he phrased it was was I think showed intelligence and in that look we're not just going to keep on I think what the, the the metaphor he used I'm not just going to kick kick this boulder uh, when we got a mountain to 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 climb um, you know and so I, I think athletic directors need to have some some um, you know they need to be smart about it and I think you know there's a lot of coaches right now that we probably think are pretty good but if you're in that building and you see how they're doing it, you know, the Bobby Petrino, like if an athletic director in that building probably should have seen that was not sustainable. However, like the way that was going, there was the bottom was going to fall out of that at some point. And, uh, and so I think it's important to just have that expertise because there are times when I don't blame a fan base or a coach or an administration of firing a coach that goes eight and four or whatever. Uh, I don't blame an uh, administration for firing a coach in year three because it's okay to, to, to say we have expectations higher than that. And if we hire another eight and four coach, 
at least we tried to hire another playoff coach. Miami defeated Virginia. Miami defeated Pittsburgh. Miami defeated Louisville. Miami defeated Florida State. But it lost to Georgia Tech. Like the Miami's not Miami is uh is should not get rid of Manny Diaz, but I will say that um did you see his post-game press conference after the FIU loss? Like worst like darkest day in Miami history or something? Yeah. <laughs> he he had it. It was a long face, man. He he looked he looked beat. He looked beat down. And that game was after uh an off week. You come out of that. I mean, it just the the thought that went through my mind was that that was the face of a head coach who realized that nothing he had said to his players went through. Right? Not that I mean, it just just you you when your team no shows, you're like, oh, okay, well, this stinks. We can't do anything about this. Uh, anyway, we'll keep it moving. Well, what? But let's let. Why don't we? While we're on this this topic, I would be interested in pivoting into uh, Black Island twenty four. What job opens first, USC or Texas? Uh, we could talk about that, but I'm kind of interested in y'all's take on just Tom Herman. As and, and and you can tie it to job security if you want, but that 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 was fascinating how this is playing out at Texas right now. I mean, Tom Herman's headbutting dudes before the game. Like if that isn't a desperation attempt to get your team fired up and focused, I don't know what is. So given Texas being at what six and five right yeah. now, mm-hmm. yeah, and given it won the Sugar Bowl last year, like. I am curious how we should view Tom Herman at Texas. I think I don't think he should be fired. I mean, they they won ten games last year. They won the Sugar Bowl. They played for a Big Twelve title. They beat Oklahoma in the regular season. They're clearly not that far away from being back to where they would ideally like to be on an annual basis. That said, this season has been a disaster, but. I don't think I'm seeing anything from this team in 2019 that says this isn't something that they can't recover from next year. Because, so okay, but all right, so agreed, he shouldn't be fired. But but is, are you now having? Because Tom Herman was the coaching candidate when Texas hired him. He was the mm-hmm. guy. He was like the dream. He was he was the dream man. You know, like everybody's writing in their diaries about how much they love Tom Herman. Yeah, is LSU going to replace Les Miles with Jimbo Fisher or Tom Herman kind of stuff? Yeah, and and he could do no wrong. And so I, I'm just interested in whether we should recalibrate how we view Tom Herman, less whether or not he's going to get fired. Oh, yeah, I don't think he's somebody you would consider a top 10 coach in the country like we did probably a few years ago because I think that what is clear now is while he was winning at Houston and he was recruiting like a dang rock star at Houston, it's a very different thing to recruit with that or play and coach that kind of talent against the AAC than it is the Big 12. And he's going up against teams that have similar talent or at least, you know, close enough that he's got to outcoach them. And we're seeing maybe schematically, you know, he won that national title as the offensive coordinator at Ohio State, and he did so with, you know, JT Barrett having to replace Braxton Miller, and then Barrett gets hurt, and Cardale Jones comes in. And was that schematic, or was that just having a boatload of talent again, and, you know, being Ohio State? So I think it calls into question if he is, like, some great coach, but I don't think it means that he can't be the guy who can win at Texas and get that back. Because, again, if we look, they lost by seven to LSU. They lost by seven to Oklahoma. They lost by 10 to TCU. They lost by two to Iowa State. And then the Baylor loss this week was the only two-score loss, and it looked like a team that you know just kind of was quitting on the season in some aspects. So I don't – if you look at this team right now, if you know better health defensively next season and some improvement there, I don't see how this isn't a team that can be right back playing in the Big 12 championship next year. I don't know. I, I wonder – I think that – Tom Herman might be in a position that is similar to and it's not it's not similar based on who he is and the connections to the university but in the same way that I think 
Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan football program's success might have different expectations internally against externally. I wonder what that dynamic is like right now at Texas because they've got that. Uh, I mean, the stadium looks like a construction site because they're in the middle of these massive renovations so that they can, you know, be 500 seats bigger than whatever Texas A&M's renovations were. And if the donations are still good and if the revenues are still good, I mean, you know, they've got that, uh, they've got a score graphic inside Daryl K. Royal Memorial Stadium where when there's a touchdown, the touchdown graphic itself is sponsored by Wells Fargo. So it looks like they're celebrating Wells Fargo scoring a touchdown every single time Texas scores a touchdown. Like there's just a lot of Excel spreadsheets, a lot of inflow outflow. The, the program itself truly runs like a big business. And if there's no major problems and there's only uh, you know, these narrow losses, like you mentioned, Tom, as long, you know, th- this has not been a Texas team that has been uncompetitive, even playing against an LSU team that we consider one of the best in the country an Oklahoma team. That's going to be right there in the, you know, big 12 playoff and uh, big 12 championship college football playoff race. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I think that that's a, that is a, a something that's going to be interesting. I will say that that is the best thing going for Tom Herman right now because all of the rock star shine is gone. And it may be that on the outside, we spend a lot of this offseason being like, Tom Herman, a lot of pressure on him to win now. Tom Herman, a lot of pressure on him to win now. In the same way that people on the outside seem to do the same thing with Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh, when he's going to beat Ohio State, pressure to win. Former players are getting angry. Former players are on Twitter talking about it. When internally, Harbaugh might not be uh, feeling... He, I mean, I'm sure he has high expectations for himself. I'm sure Tom Herman has high expectations for himself and the program. But just the 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 brand of Texas football and the business of Texas football, it's like as long as those things are still good, I think that Tom Herman might be just fine as the, uh, the head coach of the Longhorns. I, I will say this as far as the maybe perception of Texas and just how Herman's doing there. This is the last season of this decade. You know, we've, we've got all, you're going to see, soon see a bunch of whole all decade content. In this decade, Texas is a football program that is 69 and 57. Right. They've only and, won three Big 12 championships. Yeah. And the best season by far of this decade came last year under Tom Herman. It was their first 10 win season in a decade. So I, I understand, again, they're six and five. I get why Texas fans would be angry, and I get why some people it would be like, it's, you know, Tom Herman is a failure. You got to fire him. I think that's an overreaction going back to what we were saying with the last questions about different context. I think the context here is that Tom Herman should be just fine. And if they're six and six again next year, okay, then we start talking. Well, I, th- I think what's I, I think what's so frustrating for for Texas fans is they're sitting there like, all right, we went through the tail end of Mac Brown. Yeah, we hired Charlie Strong, and at the time, like that seemed like a good hire, and we were excited about it. And yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah, I, I like it. All right, Charlie Strong, let's do this. All right, like it. And then that went south, and there was no doubt about Tom Herman. It was the it, he was the guy, and uh, Sam Ellinger gets on the stage at the Sugar Bowl and says, "We're back," and the the program look, starts recruiting at a really high level, and now. You look up and holy cow! You tell me we might have a six and six season again. So it's I can see how frustrating it is. And and one thing that's I think is we were talking in the office today before the pod. Um, that's kind of interesting. What where you can't just totally blindly just look at recruiting rankings and just you know think all's well. Texas's 2019 class, number three in the country, highest ranked commit, Brew McCoy transfers out uh, before before the season. Jordan Whittington, second-highest-ranked player, uh, has been injured all season. Jake Smith, third-highest-ranked player, has been a little bit disappointing so far. DeGabriel Floyd, fifth-highest-ranked player, out for his career, spinal stenosis. Tyler Owens, Kenyatta Watson, both were like upside guys that weren't necessarily expected to start right away. Rashawn Johnson, quarterback's moved to running back. has actually been pretty good. Um, Darian Brown had a stroke 
before he could get to campus. Uh, another running back commit. So it's like th- th- this has been there's a lot of bad luck hitting. It's this been a doozy of a year. <laughs> yeah, it really has. Um, so you know, it's uh, this will be this will be interesting to see if they can get it back rolling again. How is the recruiting looking like for 2020 for the Longhorns? Uh, I mean, they have a good class, uh, top 10 class right now. Not, you know, they, they, they're backing away out of that Georgia, Alabama, Ohio state range, but still a very quality class. Mm, we'll keep an eye on it coming Behind up on the, <laughs> coming up on the other side, more of your questions and our answers next. This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too, with the name, your price tool from progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I love this next question, not just because the name of the listener is Yale is my safety school, but because the energy that was brought to this question just makes me feel like uh, just makes me feel like it was typed out right in the middle of uh, of the action on Saturday. I feel like we've captured a listener's um, sort of sort of in the moment intro. I have a hot take and a question related to tonight's Washington Colorado <laughs> game. <laughs> Steven Montez is the best draft eligible NFL QB prospect in the Pac-12, parentheses. Yes, better than Justin Herbert. And Jacob Eason might be the second best. Convince me otherwise. Now all caps. Convince me, gentlemen. <laughs> can I can I convince him real quick? <laughs> yeah, sure. Are are we talking about the same Steven Montez that is currently ranked dead last among qualified Pac-12 quarterbacks in efficiency rating this year? was ranked eighth last year and was ranked eighth the year before, who has averaged 7.4 yards per attempt through his career and almost has a complete two-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio. That's Steven Montez? Hey, I don't know, man. I'm with him. Montez is a gamer. I could absolutely see him as a backup quarterback week 12 in the NFL season coming out and leading his team to a 17-13 to win. I mean, this isn't the year. This is not the year to be back in Montez. No. I could see Steven Montez winning a Grey Cup. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to the Winnipeg. Is it the Winnipeggers? The Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Blue Bombers. should be the Winnipeggers. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, frankly, like, they're they're probably, before the season maybe, you could have convinced me to to get behind that argument. But this, like, he hadn't even been good this year. He's had, he's he's been, like, nonsensically, nonsensically, bad in a few mm-hmm. games and so uh I, I guess i didn't even see the washington game this weekend i guess he had a good game against washington um but i, I would disagree with that while still maintaining that justin herbert is overrated oh right because and, and that and that and that jacob beeson madden backpedals every time there's pressure yeah now, if you wanted to make the tyler huntley there you the go best back 12 quarterback or even Kadan Slovis who is only a freshman and is having a great year for a freshman okay yeah. but don't come at me with Steven Montez and I don't mean to diss Montez but come on I'll yeah. take Dorian Thompson yeah. Robinson too go yeah, oh, Jaden Daniels come on Yale is my safety school <laughs> all right come on. <laughs> second part of Yale is my safety school uh says and what is happening with Washington I think Coach Peterson is a top five coach and their roster is one of the best in the Pac-12. So what's going on? Is it just thin margins and bad luck? 
trouble finding an offensive identity with no Jonathan Smith, Jake Browning, or Miles Gaskin? Or are there bigger issues that should concern Washington fans going forward? All right. So this is, I think, a fascinating point. Agree. Because think about when we do these coach rankings every year for CBS, when they ask us to rank all 65 Power 5 head coaches. And... You know, where collectively, like where do we typically have Chris Peterson? Top, like top five, basically, right? Usually, mm-hmm. certainly in that range. I mean, if a top five or, I mean, even a top 10 coach in college football at a power five program that's not a disadvantaged, you know, Iowa State or Minnesota type is if, if you are, like those coaches should never have a six and five season or a six and six season. So I think there's like, I'm not sure what to make of it, but this is not a good look. And then they've been recruiting at a pretty high level. They've got all kinds of quarterbacks on the roster. They've got a talented defense. They've got, I mean, they've got play, they got playmakers. Salvin Ahmed is a, is a, like as a, he is uh, as fast of a running back as you're going to find anywhere. They got receivers, Puka Nakua and Ty Jones, and all these guys were, were really good players coming out of high school. I, I don't know. Is, is it, maybe Jonathan Smith was a, a lot bigger deal over there than anyone realized. But I think this is a real – I'm not saying a concern in the sense of like what's – you know oh, Chris Peterson's on the hot seat or you know, none of that nonsense. But I'm just saying in terms of the way we view Chris Peterson – I think this is a pretty damning season. I I think it's probably just offensive stagnation. I think they need to make some changes to the offensive staff, or at least their offensive philosophy, because it's it's a bad season. But at the same time, this is also a Washington team that you know the three years before went thirty two and nine. So it's the program was humming, and it's, it strikes me as a kind of bad year. And it's just. I'm not really ready. It's kind of it's similar to Tom Herman, except Peterson's accomplished so much more. And I think that this is one of those seasons where maybe the team is just kind of reacting to losing some important games early. Because even if you look at Jacob Eason, like from August through the end of October, this is a guy who had 16 touchdowns to three interceptions. In three November games, he's got five touchdowns, five interceptions. His numbers have fallen completely off the board this month. He's completing 56% of his passes, not even averaging six yards per an attempt. So I, I think that maybe there's a confidence problem with the QB, and that is really kind of cratering the offense. And I just think that we've mentioned a little bit. I, I think that this is an offense that could probably, yeah, I, I think missing Jonathan Smith is definitely playing a role. And I think that they could use more of a creative spark with what they want to do with their personnel and how they can use it. Because this is a team that is too talented to be as staid and boring as it is on offense at times. John, we don't even, like, back in the Boise State days, you never thought of, uh, back in Chris Peterson's Boise State days, you never thought of that offense as being, like, boring. And they and they had multiple offensive coordinators. Mm-hmm. They even had some that would that went on to be not that good elsewhere. And so, you, you know, I would have assumed that Chris Peterson was a big part of the success there. I don't know whether he's he's not you know, not as involved as he used to be. Maybe he needs to get more hands on. I don't know. But um, th- that's, I mean, they had, they had turnover at Boise at the offensive coordinator position and they, then they always had success. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to make of this right now. This Washington team needs, uh, this Washington team needs to be able to run the ball really effectively in a dominant way to make everything else work. And I think that that philosophy backfires when you have injuries along the offensive line or when your offensive line talent just isn't uh, elite compared to the competition. But this is a good offensive line. But I mean, they haven't a, dominated. They're Joe, they're, they're, aren't they a Joe Moore Award semifinalist? Like, this, that may, it might not be like a dominating offensive line. I don't know. But, I mean, it's a quality group. I don't think you can – I don't think you can blame the offensive line at Washington. Mm. Well, let me let me let me pull up my metrics here real quick. Your line let's stats. What, let's see what my line ratings say about Washington because they don't always agree. With the Joe Moore Award. With the Joe Moore Award. Uh Washington. 
Where are you at, Washington? What the hell? This is great podcast. No, Washington's <laughs> offensive line, not that great according to my metrics. They rank ooh, um, 50th in the country. Um, are they... That could again. This is also. It's not like a talent ranking. It's just a performance ranking. Well, it's but but it's that's probably like I wonder how much of that is based on the sack rate, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, and how much of the how, how much of the sack rate, rate is Jacob, Jacob Eason? Eason. <laughs> Jacob Eason. Yeah. doing this little spinneroo. Because uh, the the I mean, I, I, look, the Joe Moore Award is. There's a human element to it that is maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. But I, I do trust that those guys are actually watching the film and making, uh, you know, critical decisions and not just going with the flow. And the the the, the semifinals for that award are Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Kentucky, LSU, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Oregon, Wisconsin, and Washington. I will say this: Football Outsiders, Washington's offensive line ranks 25th in line yards. 16th in standard down line yards and 84th in passing down line yards. But again, Jacob Eason, that could be the spinnerometer to my right. Man, I just I'm having anyway. Well, we we're going to come back to this for sure, um, because Washington, we thought was the class of the conference you know, rebound from a couple of losses, end up winning the conference anyway. I mean, this was, uh, for all the hand-wringing about Chris Peterson, 11 games ago, Washington was in the Rose Bowl. So maybe this is just the 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 drop-off slash regression year. Let's remember that some of the, maybe this is the, con- this is the podcast about context. The context around some of these Washington losses also uh, makes things a little bit more interesting. All right. Three Generations Yankees asks, following Tom's comment that unders pay off because fans are so optimistic about points to be scored, so they tend to go bet the over in the football games, does that same thing apply to season victory win totals, maybe even more so? What true fan of State U would bet the under on his or her team's season victory total? My gut tells me that might add at least... 0.5 games to the over-under for the Vegas line on team victories. So if there's a 0.5 game hook, bet the under. I will start off by answering the final question. Do not blindly bet the under on every single 0.5 <laughs> uh, win total that you see on the board. And I would start off by saying, yes, teams like Ohio State, Alabama, the Dallas Cowboys, the Duke Blue Devils basketball team, like your your what your gut says about the big public teams are probably going to have some influence there. But I will argue, and I'm interested to get y'all's take on this one, that we, the media, can be as responsible as uh, the Joe Public diehard fans for creating narratives that can drive win totals that might be off from uh, where they should be. I don't have any data to support it, but I, I respect the thought process behind it, but I just think that with win totals, it's probably not quite the same simply because it's a limited supply of games. Whereas in a, in an actual game, as far as points are concerned, you know, it's more random. Whereas if you look at a schedule for a team at, before the season even the most you know casual college football fan can kind of figure out how many games that team is likely to win and how many it's likely to lose so you can go through a schedule and be like okay seven and five and then bam the win total is usually at seven and if you're lucky it's at seven and a half or six and a half and allows you a chance to make the play so i don't think the same thing applies quite to a total in an individual game guys our our win totals Currently, preseason picks are sitting I don't want to right talk about it. at sixteen and four. Yeah, and who's, mo- who's responsible for most of those four losses? Uh, you are. Yeah, so let's not talk about. It. Wait, <laughs> well, no, you and Chip each have two. Oh, and I'm okay. sitting. I'm sitting here. Uh, I've got three games that are either going to be pushes or 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 losses. So my my wins are all in the barn. I got six wins. And I've got three out there that are either going to be pushes or losses. But, and then, you know, y'all are kind of in a similar place. 
Do what? we do we still have uh do we still have some chips on the table or is it all done? No, we got some chips on the table. That's what I'm saying. Kentucky, let's let's do that. Find out this weekend. Yeah, let's make that a part of the first helping of locks. We'll do a little a quick review yeah. and update yeah. of uh, the win totals and then what we have left. Yeah, Kentucky yeah. Louisville is a big game for your boy here. <laughs> yeah, you need that one. You need which side of that do you need? Kentucky. Yeah. Mm, okay. Tom Tom got in there with Herb Street. Everyone who's who's drinking buddies with Mark Stoops just started <laughs> slamming the over. <laughs> Tom must Tom must be on Mark Stoops' Christmas card list. How about Mark Stoops removing his name from Florida State? Yeah, how about that? Was I that wonder- him removing his name or him not getting offered the job though? I think that he had a conversation with Florida. This is just the Josh Newberg of Knowles two four seven does a great it's Knowles two four seven, right, Barton? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Great job. Great job reporting on this. They've been all over it. Uh, be sure to go check out their site and their message boards, their hot board. Like they, they've, they seem to be well-placed with this particular search and the reporting from Josh and his colleagues painted a picture of this was a, an informational type meeting where no offer was going to be extended. If Florida state had extended an offer, maybe Mark Stoops takes it. But I think that uh, the way that that meeting went has sent the signals that Florida State wants to be able to ask some other people and that Mark Stoops was more of a fallback. And I think Mark Stoops didn't want to be viewed as a fallback. And that's why he's removed his name from consideration. Okay. Is it, would, you, would you agree with that, Barton? Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll ask him when we go out to dinner next week. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gamecock lover asks, "Is Muschamp gone?" I don't. Th- I mean, I kind of. I don't think he's gone because I still think the athletic director Ray Tanner is, is. I feel like he's so far behind. Like he is so far in Muschamp's corner that it was. It would almost be like a referendum on him if he fires him. So, the university think- president sort of tripped over his words. Yeah. Last week. Uh, hinting that he had had conversations about how big buyouts were taken care of. Not good for Will Muschamp. And there's there's this like the worst, the worst type setting for Will Muschamp going into this final game against Clemson is the what seems like straight from a booster's mouth type reports that say, yeah, Will Muschamp is fine dot 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 unless they get blown out on Saturday like unless they just are unless it is an embarrassing loss at home to the Clemson Tigers your in-state rivals well don't we all think they're gonna get blown out yes that's what I'm saying it's the worst (laughs) setup possible look no you're all good just go out there and don't get blown out to this death star of a team but but what if now for my Monday after column, I did like a college football playoff doomsday scenario, and this was part of it. What if South Carolina beats Clemson and then South Carolina finishes as the greatest five and seven team ever as it will have wins over Clemson and Georgia? Would that make the season more frustrating or less frustrating? Because on the one hand, hey, we beat both Georgia and Clemson, so we can't be that bad. But on the other hand, how did we beat Georgia and Clemson and yet lose to like North Carolina and Tennessee and App State? We should in Mizzou. We should be like you know eight and four, or nine and three. I think it makes it less frustrating because you've beaten Clemson. Oh yeah, you'll take that. You'll take for that. Sure. Yeah, that's... but I get to see like Will Muschamp sitting in the president's office or the AD's office, and there he's just like, man, you know, I need some reassurance. Like, am I, you know, I got a coaching staff I got to worry about. I got a family. Like, oh, you're good. You're good. You're good, man. You're back. Don't worry about it. We support you. We're behind you. Everything is good. No worries. And then as they're walking out of the office, kind of pat them on the back, just, just don't get blown out by Yes. Yes. That's, a, that's the worst. Oh, good luck to Will game planning this week. Yeah. Not fun. 
Uh, all right. If we did not get to your question, don't worry. All of them have been logged in the bag of mail, and we will continue to tear through them on Mailbag Mondays. Remember the way that you do it. So you leave a five-star rating, leave a review, and then leave your question for the mailbag wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Follow him at Barton Simmons. Follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. It is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.